0: If you would turn with me to our study in the book of 1 Corinthians, we're looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 7 tonight, wrapping up that chapter with verses 29 through 40. In this section of scripture, we are reminded that Paul is teaching a church that is troubled, a church that has all kinds of problems. And in case you're wondering, it's not just the Corinthian church, it's every church. We all have our problems. We may not always see them as clearly as we do in the pages of 1 Corinthians, but we know that we struggle too. One of the big teachings here is that your daily life should change as a result of your becoming a believer. This change begins with the heart, but extends outward into your actions and your relationships. And so, therefore, Paul continues this topic of marriage and relationships in this section of 1 Corinthians in response to some questions they had about different topics in their church. Pick it up, verse 29. He's just talked about the importance of, if possible, remaining as you are in your circumstances. But here's what he says. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. And those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart, to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then, he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better." A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married and to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I too have the Spirit of God. So we consider this teaching, which has some very interesting things in it. Let us turn to the Lord briefly in prayer. Lord, guide our hearts, our thoughts, that they would be pleasing in your sight. Father, may your spirit apply these words to us, that we might live according to them. And Father, I pray that if anything is spoken here that is not consistent with your word, your purpose, then Lord, we pray that it would pass away and never be heard from again. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So let me ask you all a question that you've been asked perhaps many times, and it's kind of a silly question because life doesn't really happen this way. But if you could grab one thing from your house as it's burning down around you, what would you grab? Well, maybe this isn't what Paul means in this text, but I think he is saying something like this, if you knew you only had a few months to live, what would be your priorities? What would change in your life as a result of that? What decisions would you make in light of that news? And then the question, why aren't you living that way now? You see, he's telling them that they should live differently when they become believers because they're living in a temporal world. It's not going to last forever. Secondly, he's telling them, if possible, live free from anxieties. Easier said than done. And finally, he's saying freedom brings valid options. First of all, in verses 29 through 31, the context here is discussing marriage and whether or not to remain in the current state where you are or to seek a spouse or not seek a spouse or whatever the circumstances are. And he goes through this uh, particular thing in light of the fact that he says, in verse 31, he says, for the present form of this world is passing away. He also says, in verse 29, the appointed time has grown very short. Now, we could discuss a long time what Paul means by that. Does he mean that Jesus was coming back uh, in a very few short years? Uh, I don't happen Uh, to necessarily think that. I think what he's reminding them of is that their lives are short in the light of eternity, and we all know that the things of this earth will pass away so that the things of this life for us are temporal. So how should that affect us? Well, here's a list. The first thing that he describes is this. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. In other words, married men should live like they have no wives. Now that could have some interesting complications to it, couldn't it? Does that mean that I should not pay any attention to my wife whatsoever? No, I don't think he's saying that. We'll get to what it means in a moment. The next thing he says is, those who mourn as though they were not mourning. Weeping folk or mourning folk should live as if they are not mourning. Of course, why do people mourn? The death of a loved one. The loss of a job, uh, the circumstances of losing their possessions in a flood or a fire, losing a child or a parent, all of these are times of weeping. Does that mean, Paul says, that we shouldn't care whether or not these things happen and we should stoically live our lives in such a sense that we're removed from our emotions? Well, hold that thought. That's the second thing in the list. The third thing is this those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. In other words, rejoicing folk live as if they are not rejoicing. Now again, does this mean Paul is saying at a wedding feast we should not be rejoicing at marriage? Does this mean that if our favorite ball team wins the game, we shouldn't leap with joy? Does this mean we shouldn't find joy in the good things of life? Again. Hold that thought. That's the third thing on the list. Here's the fourth thing. Those who buy as though they had no goods. Buyers live as if they had no possessions or no goods. Does this mean that when we go off to the store, we should just forget to bring the merchandise home? Or does this mean that we should uh, not care about buying and selling anymore Because we know that time is short, so maybe we shouldn't even care about what we have or what we own. But the last thing, I think, is a summary of all of these four. Those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. Live as if you have no dealings in the world. The word here for dealings is the idea of uh, a use for or using the worldly things. Now now, what does he mean by this list? Live in these ways so that you don't rejoice, you don't weep, you don't act as if you're married, you're, you're no buyer or seller, and you, you don't have any use of these things in the world. Is Paul saying that we should live our lives in such a way uh, that we're so focused on eternity that in essence we don't live a life of practicality? No, I don't think that. But some people did. The panic of 1837 in our own country spurred a man by the name of William Miller in Low Hampton, New York to declare that the end of the world and Christ's return would come in 1843. Of course, it didn't. So he said he was wrong. He had miscalculated. So he chose a new date, October twenty-second, 1844. And he gained 50 to 100,000 followers in the United States who thought that the end of the world was going to come on October 22, 1844. So what would you do if you were convinced the end of the world would come on that day? Well, here's what some of them did. Many of them sold all their possessions. Many of them began to wear white robes as the day approached, particularly because there was a comet that streaked across the sky a few days before the the appointed time of the end of the earth. In fact, there were some individuals who actually climbed mountains or trees to hasten their ascension into heaven on the day or the day before October 22, 1844. These people known as Millerites in that time were an emotional and passionate followers of this man, William Miller, a farmer who thought he calculated according to numbers in scripture when the last day would be. And of course we know that day came and went, and Jesus did not come back. Today, followers of that movement are known as Seventh-day Adventists. Is this what Paul means when he says we should live in this way? Well, of course not. In fact, Paul writes to the Thessalonian church that the day will come like a thief in the night. We won't even know the day that will come. And he reminds them if people don't work, they shouldn't even eat. In fact, we're reminded by these other pages of Scripture That yes, we live in a temporal world. No, we don't know when Jesus is going to come back. So what does Paul mean when he says we should live our lives as if these things don't matter so much? It's this, worldly things should not engross us. They should not be the most important thing to us. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't pay attention to our wives, but it does mean that we pay attention to our lives with an eye fixed on Jesus. As it says in the book of Hebrews, it says that we should not let any weight or any distraction, sin that clings to us, hinder us from fixing our eyes on Jesus. And what happens to so many is we let our emotions take over. We let our marriage take over. We let our families take over. We let our buying and selling take over. We let our dealings of the world take over so that we have no room for Jesus. And Paul says this, because time has grown very short, be careful how you live. In other words, this isn't a stoic, detached idea. This isn't an uh, apocalypsist, escapist idea. This is a Christian idea of being free from the world's control and not entangled in the things of the world. And so, therefore, he wants us to live free from anxieties. That's what it says in verse 32. Now, I wish that I could follow this verse to a T. Couldn't you? Don't you want a life free from anxieties? A life free from the worries of war and the worries of finances and the worries of relationships and the worries of your job and all of those things? But here he says this in particular. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. You see, he's reminding us that a Christian should be focused on the things of the world. In in essence, this way of anxiety, to be anxious in this way, is to be focused on or to be concerned about. And he says, if you are not married, you are free to be concerned, not about your possessions, not about your relationships, but especially concerned about pleasing the Lord. Pleasing the Lord with your possessions, pleasing the Lord in your relationships, So he says the unmarried man is anxious to please the Lord. Then he says, what about the married man? The married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. Now, of course, we also know that if he's a Christian, he's also anxious to please the Lord. So this married man is anxious to please both his wife and the Lord. And therefore, he says, he has divided interests. Verse 34, his interests are divided. Divided. Now I have to say, being a married man, there are times when I would do anything to please Jennifer. There are times when I desire her approval more than anything else. There are times especially I know if she's down or if she's struggling or if she has something that I know she's anxious to do that I want to drop everything in order to help her, to please her, to comfort her, to be with her. I'm her husband. I have vowed to do such things. I am to sacrifice my own life for her sake. But this is a reminder that because of that relationship, I cannot give my total attention sometimes to the things of the Lord because there are things that I need to do as a husband. They're not wrong to do necessarily unless I do them in a wrong way, but because of my vows and because of my relationship to her and because she is, apart from Jesus, the most important human being in my life, then sometimes I have to sacrifice one thing or the other to please my wife. So he says the married man has divided interests. But he says this to the unmarried or betrothed woman, she also is anxious about the things of the Lord. It's not just a male thing. It's a Christian thing. If we're Christians, we're anxious to be about the things of the Lord. So an unmarried woman is anxious to please the Lord just like an unmarried man is and just like a married man should be. And here he says this, He says about her, she is anxious how to be holy in body and spirit. Now, I don't think Paul is saying the man isn't anxious uh, to be holy in body and spirit too, but he's just using this opportunity to say the woman is as well, and particularly so, is anxious how to be holy in body and spirit. What does that mean? She's seeking to be set apart for the sake of the Lord. She's interested in being not only in her spiritual life and her prayers and her reading scripture and her worship and her activities for the sake of the Lord, but also in her body, the things that she does in the everyday life. She is anxious to please the Lord and be set apart, consecrated to him and holy. And then he says again, A married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. Isn't this true? Both the husband and the wife in a godly marriage are seeking to please one another because they love each other and they will sacrifice for each other. In fact, we know we should try to please our spouse in marriage because marriage is no sin. Marriage models Christ and the church. Sacrificial love. But there are benefits to both marriage and to singleness. And Paul says, on the one hand, it is great if you can remain single and be totally dedicated to the Lord without the hindrances and the divided interests of marriage. And yet at the same time, he says, and has said throughout this context, marriage is not only no sin, it is a good option, it is a godly option, and it is something by which two people together can please the Lord. So he says there is no necessary, necessarily better condition of either singleness or marriage, He says, I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. In other words, the most important factor is how you are seeking to please him in your life. So freedom brings options, doesn't it? Here are the options, verses 36 through 40. If anyone thinks that he's not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong and it has to be, let him do as he wishes, let them marry. It is no sin. Now he's speaking particularly to those who are not married. In fact, I tend to agree with some of those commentators who would say that this passage may perhaps be written to the parents who are making arranged marriages. I think this fits better the Greek in the context here. It's foreign to us. In our American society, we have uh, dating and courting and we have all those things and people choose their own spouses and all that kind of thing. But, But in societies around us in the world, even today, but particularly historically, people would arrange the marriage of their children. And so I think what he's saying here is, if anyone thinks that he as a father is not behaving properly toward his virgin daughter, the word here is virgin, If his passions are strong, and it has to be, and I think here it's describing here the passions, there might be a footnote in your Bible that says, or her passions. He's saying basically, in certain circumstances, you as a parent arranging this marriage, it may be okay for you either to give her away or not to give her away, depending on the circumstances. But he is saying marriage is a valid option if a man is not behaving properly toward the virgin. In other words, if the man is not considering her needs and her circumstances in society, if he's not considering whether or not she will be provided for, if he's not considering whether or not she is able to maintain the status of being single, those types of things, then he needs to consider that in his decision. He also says if it has to be. In other words, if he has an obligation. Has he already signed a contract? Has he already promised his daughter certain things? You may also apply this in the case of two betrothed individuals. Are they already obligated to this? Are they already considering the needs of the other? And finally, if there is a desire to marry, let him do as he wishes, it says. Let them marry. Marriage is an option. Paul doesn't say, because I'm single and I'd like you to be as I am, and it may be better in some circumstances, he doesn't say everybody has to be single. What he says is, in certain circumstances, case by case, marriage may be the better option. But then he also says, remaining single may be the better option. He says this, he says, so then he who marries is betrothed as well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. Now, why does he say that? First of all, he's reminding them, remaining single is a valid option. In fact, the word here about being under their control or so forth uh, seems to indicate that you have authority regarding your own will to do it or not. There is authority that is given here, particularly to the parent in arranged marriage or in their culture, uh, to the man who was engaged, to the woman, and he says, there is authority regarding your will to do it. And marrying the virgin is good. It's a good thing, a good option. But then he says, not marrying her maybe even better. Well, why does he say that? Again, because of the undivided interests. I don't think he's saying it's better in every circumstance. I don't think he's saying it's better all the time because he's already said, take all these things into consideration. Now, Pastor Scott will tell you that he did marriage counseling many times. In fact, he had very extensive marriage counseling, probably more extensive than most other pastors would have in marriage counseling. And he will tell you that they might go through that marriage counseling and he might get halfway through or a quarter through or three quarters of the way through and said, you know, I don't think you should get married. And you know, when you say that in our culture and society, they look at you cross-eyed and they think, how can you judge us in that way and say those things? And they might go off and find somebody else who will marry them. And maybe it'll work out, maybe it won't. When someone comes to me and says, I want to get married, I'll say, hey, we need to do premarital counseling. And we sit down together and sometimes the individuals who have come to me have ended up getting married and sometimes they haven't either because they saw something in counseling that they knew it wouldn't work, or else I recommended to them and perhaps they followed the advice that now was not the time to get married. You see, God wants us to consider all the things of his kingdom in our relationships with each other. Do we have the same goals in Christ? Do we seek and understand the same scriptures the same way? It doesn't mean that we're going to agree in every opinion and in every detail of those things, but are we seeking the best interests of the other person, and are we together seeking to please the Lord? That is the main thing. It's also free in these circumstances. It says a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier to re- if she remains as she is. And I think that I too have the spirit of God. Now, now, Paul isn't saying that this was just his opinion. What he's saying here is there may be those in their church who may be teaching other things. But he says, basically, this is a reaffirmation of his apostolic authority to say, I have the spirit. He's inspired me to write these things. And he says, here is a valid option. The widow is free to remarry. You know, what a wonderful blessing that can be in certain circumstances. If she has that desire and the circumstances pro- provide for themselves and they, they follow this advice about, uh, about uh, how they behave towards each other, their obligations, uh, their desire to marry, all those things, and they review these things together and seek the counsel of God, she has freedom, in that case, to find a spouse. And yet he gives them one qualification that he gives to all those only in the Lord. In other words, whether you're an unmarried virgin, he will say this in another place, do not be unequally yoked, or whether you are a widow, or whatever your circumstance, you have no business marrying someone who is not a Christian if you can help it. In other words, it is clear Two Christians should marry each other. One Christian should not marry an unbeliever, if at all possible. Only in the Lord. And yet he gives this reminder again. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. This has been the context of the whole passage. Last week, the title of the sermon was Stay Where You Are. Because he thinks in many circumstances, if we stay where we are, we will enjoy Being in God's love and God's kingdom in those circumstances, but he also reminds us it's not for everybody. You see, there are different paths. As a parent of teenagers, I've begun to know this quite well. When they grow up, they take different paths. Sometimes there are paths you don't expect. Sometimes there are circumstances that come into play, but you understand that these individuals who are growing up, they have different talents, different gifts, different ideas, different circumstances, and sometimes the path that they choose to go is not wrong, but different. And so too, Paul is telling us that sometimes whether someone is married or not is not so much important as whether or not they are pleasing the Lord or not. You see, the most important thing in all these circumstances, married, weeping, rejoicing, buying and selling, dealing with the world, considering whether or not to remain single or to get married, all of those circumstances, God wants us to glorify him in whatever situation we find ourselves. You see, Paul is not minimizing the decisions of life, like to marry or not to marry. Neither is he trivializing everyday living or emotional events that cause us to weep with joy or weep with sorrow. But he is saying there is an underlying consideration in every decision. You see, the days are short. We don't know when God will call us to himself. We don't know when Jesus will return. In every decision we make, we seek how we can best glorify God. If we need a partner and we will struggle alone, we should get married. If we can stand being single and pleasing God in an undivided way, then we should remain as we are. But there is more. Time is short. We don't know how much there is. But he says, in essence, make the most of it, not to gain for yourself, but to glorify God and to please his interests. Let me ask you, what condition are you in? What decisions are you having to make? What are you struggling with? Are you making your decisions based on worldly things and all the considerations that the world has to give you? Are you making those decisions because these things are the most important things, or are you looking at these matters in the light of God's word in all eternity for his kingdom? Time is short. Don't let the things of life entangle you and distract you from the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Father, we need wise counsel. We need your word. We need your spirit to teach us your word and to remind us of your word, to convict us of our need for Christ, and, Lord, to teach us the way everlasting. Father, I pray that you'll help us in these decisions, particularly our young people who face these decisions. Sometimes it seems too soon, but Lord, help us too. Help us, older people, understand that we too should be making these decisions in light of your Word. Help us, Lord, to be anxious about your things and not the things.